There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Hey everyone, welcome to Wired to Hunt. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson, and today I'm talking with Tim Kent, how to become a more efficient and effective deer hunter. Welcome to Wired to Hunt, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. You'll notice that Mark Kenyon is off again out on another vacation. I think he said he was at the National Hopscotch Convention down in Tyler, Texas. So feel free to wish him luck down there in that competition. My guest today is Tim Kent. Tim, he sells real estate for Whitetail Properties. He owns a marketing company in the outdoor space. He is a diehard bow hunter rifle hunter too, I should say, but mostly a bow hunter out in New York state. He makes a trek out West at least once a year to hunt elk. The guy is ate up with hunting and he's at a point in his life where he's really figured out how to manage this balance between family and hunting and being super disciplined and kind of freelancing it out in the woods. He's got a really neat perspective on whitetail hunting and hunting in general and how you can enjoy it more while also doing a bunch of stuff in the outdoors that helps you level up your woodsmanship. Tim is a a great he's a he's a great inspiration and he really has some nice real world whitetail hunting advice. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Tim Ken, how are you doing, buddy? I am great, Tony. The sun is out. It's like 70-something degrees, low humidity. We can't ask for better weather in New York State, so that always keeps my mood real high. Yeah, after after the heat spell that we just got through uh, earlier in the summer, that's it's like dreamy weather. Yeah, you guys really had it, man. It sounded like it was like jungle hot out there. It was stupid. I mean, it was... Just it, it was the kind of weather where you're like, I don't want to run. I don't want to go scout. I don't want to really do a whole lot outside except be in the water. And it's it, it moved on finally, but it stuck around a long time. And it was it was rough, man. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't do well in those types of conditions when that I don't mind the heat. But when the humidity kicks up, I just I just don't feel great. I, my 
I feel woozy in my head and I just, I could never live down South. I applaud the people that do live down there. It's, it's not for me, you know, take me out to where out West where it's dry. It's, it's plenty humid, like in the Lake region where we are and I'm good. So, well, yeah, yeah, I'm sure there are uh, Southern bow hunters down in Florida or Louisiana or somewhere that listen to this. They're like, these guys are such pansies. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Yeah. I I'll put that badge on my shirt. No problem. Right. I'm sure it's got a very special emblem and everything else. Yep. They can call me whatever they want. Yeah. Well, you, I, I, I wanted to have you on because, you know, you're a good friend of mine and we talk whitetail hunting a lot, but you and I are kind of both in the same life space. We're relatively the same age and we've gone through a lot of the trophy hunting stuff and we're, we're in sort of a different, uh, different stage of deer hunting. And I, I love your perspective on it because you, you're one of those people out there who's, you, you're really getting after staying in shape and you really get after the whitetails, but you have this like targeted approach and this disciplined approach. And I think it just ties in so well. And the, and the message with your, the kind of the way you structure your life is really relevant to everybody who loves whitetails. Cause I think we, we see this message out there a lot. And this is, this is so prevalent on social media, right? Where you think that people who are in the industry or who are really successful whitetail hunters are scouting every day of the year and they're out running cameras and they're out doing something. And it's not, you and I both know it's not true. Like people are taking days off. They're taking weeks off. You know, when you have that three week time period where it's a hundred degrees every day with a hundred percent humidity, you know, not everybody's out there, you know, scouting early June deer. And I, and I think your approach to that is just awesome. Oh, well, and, th- and there are guys that are after it every day cause they feel like they have to be. I, I just, I guess for me, I sort of graduated beyond that thought process for me. You know, we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording and, and, um, you know, I thought, to myself, life is really short and it's about having fun, right? It's one of the reasons why I've been self-employed the vast majority of my career, because working for somebody else in my mind isn't all that much fun. I don't have the freedoms that I want and whatever else. So when it comes to comes to the whitetail side of things and transitioning to it, it can it can be a lot of work. And I needed to augment that and find other ways to Although whitetail hunting is a lot of fun, right, and preparing for it and everything else, I needed to find other ways to offset it because I found my degrees of satisfaction, like if we were looking at it from an economic standpoint, were decreasing with time because I was feeling a lot of pressure. I was putting a lot of pressure on myself, just that that intra-industry thing, like when you get involved in the industry, you're like, oh my gosh, I have to perform and do – you know, do all these things and be out in the field all the time and kind of be waving the flag constantly – and it just got to the, the point where I still enjoyed it, but I wasn't enjoying it to the same level. And so I needed to take a step back and then augment what I was doing with my my life. And in a lot of ways, that included getting my family involved in some of my activities or getting me involved in some of their activities. Like, you know, my my girls and my wife, they all fly fish now. So it's cool that we can go out as a family and, and do that, um, at, especially at this time of year when the fishing is really good. And then we can transition to white tail, white tail stuff. My, you know, my girls like to come out and help on occasion. I mean, they're not going to be there every week if I'm there every week, but they do like in the spring to go and look for shed antlers. They're good for probably two days and, you know, all, all four of us will go and 
we'll go look for some antlers and you know i kind of try and make it fun for them and incentivize them you know we We'll pin a $20 <laughs> bill to the wall. Whoever finds the biggest shed gets 20 bucks, and nobody ever finds any sheds. So no, so I know my money is <laughs> not at risk, but, um, you know, it's just, it's good. I mean, we take the dogs and, and we just go and, and have a good time. And it's little, it's little instances like that that are also filling their emotional bank account. So when it comes time where I do get crazy about hunting in the fall, or in the late summer when there's, you know, a little bit of extra work to be done, you know, they feel whole and they don't feel abandoned by dad or, you know, the husband and, and go do their thing. And for me, that was just a, a way of getting myself to feel better and my family to feel better. And, you know, I just, uh, I just, I, I'm always doing something like you are. I'm, I'm just always active, whether it's mentally or physically, and it couldn't be all whitetails all the time or all elk all the time sort of touching on elk, that was one of the things too that sort of pulled me away from whitetail. And I had to, I had to operate my hunting or my activities in the same way like I operate my businesses in that I had to start kind of time blocking. And that's probably the best way to describe this is I started time blocking what I was doing at certain times a year. This time block, the major emphasis is fishing. And the next major emphasis is preparing for elk hunting. And then the third one is whatever. And again, that's amidst family and whatever else, because that's my ultimate priority, no matter what they come first before everything. But, uh, you know, and then as we transition to later parts of the summer, <clears throat> you know, fishing kind of starts to transition away. And then it's more being prepared for elk hunting. And then whitetail hunting takes a higher priority and fishing slides back. And training is always a, a cornerstone that I have in my life, but I'm just constantly sort of shifting my time and doing like what everybody else does with certain things, looking at the weather, deciphering opportunities that revolve around that, and then inserting activities in, into those things. And, uh, you know, it's just really worked for me. Yeah. And you figured out, and it, I, I, I'm doing this too, is we, with this message out there kind of of, you know, if you want to be a really successful whitetail hunter, you've got to devote so much time and energy to it. And I do think there is like a life space for that, right? I think like a, if you're relatively new to it or you're, you know, the 24 year old with not a lot of other yep. you know, commitments in life, man, go nuts, right? But well, the other, excuse me, to interrupt you. I think yeah. the other time where you have to devote a lot of stuff is if you're hunting a new property, like, or you're developed, let's say you bought a property or you leased a property and you're trying to develop it that takes a huge investment of time too. So, you know, that's a different life space as well. Oh, absolutely. And it, you know, that's a, I, I look at that. I, I see the, I see these two things differently in my head. Like that part of developing a property is really fun. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. the, the part of, of scouting nonstop and, you know, just like diving headlong in there. Sometimes that's not fun. And you kind of, you kind of mentioned that, like when you got into the the hunting industry, there is this like keeping up with the Joneses mentality you get. And, and believe me, I get this as like a first world problem, but yeah. I did, you know, I did the same thing when I, when I went freelance, I was like, I've got to kill big bucks. And that was when I made the decision to do it on public land. And it was the least fun that I've ever had deer hunting. There was, there were a few years there where I was like, I don't like this. And it was, it was the pressure thing. And I just hadn't found that equilibrium of like, you don't have to, I, I personally don't have to go 
nuts every single day or every single week to be successful out there. And it actually works against me when I, when I kind of push myself into that. And you mentioned something that I, I don't think we give nearly enough play to in this, in this quest to be like a better whitetail hunter is, you know, one of the first things you brought up is going fly fishing. And anybody who's paying attention to Mark's social media right now, that dude's out fly fishing like crazy all the time. Like he's not, he's not, yeah, he's not scouting deer nonstop. He's doing other things. And, you know, you mentioned the elk thing and you're super, super passionate about that. I really think that a life dedicated to lots of cool stuff outdoors just lifts you up in every aspect. And it's hard. It's a hard kind of connection to make with the the whitetail thing. But when you're out there doing other stuff that makes you happy and you're out in the outdoors, it's going to make you better somehow. You're if if for no other reason, like you said, then you'll just enjoy the the time deer hunting more. Yeah, for sure. And like at the risk of sounding like a total hippie, I mean, you have the opportunity to enjoy like little small aspects of certain things. Like I can't tell you how many times. You know, so my mind is on fly fishing a lot right now. It will be through the end of the month because that's when our bugs are really good and whatever. But I'll go out and I'll I'll go to a spot. I mean, they're not spots that I hunt, but I'll see something while I'm fly fishing or I'll see some animal while I'm fly fishing or whatever and it'll it'll trigger me to think about a a hunting situation. So strangely because my my world outside of my family is centered around whitetails, like many of us. I mean, the entire outdoor industry is that is centered around whitetails. It is the backbone of what we do and our our ability to financially make a living. But like there's just I mean, whether whether it's a, a little behavior a bird does or or you know, watching a rabbit do something through the brush or whatever, I I'll, I'll watch that just kind of being a student of nature and I'll go oh, well, that's interesting. And it'll make me think of another dot. It'll make me pull another dot from somewhere else. And then my mind gets pulled into whitetails, but I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent consumed by it. And, you know, I mean, I see some of these guys, especially like you said on social and it's just their, their solitary push and I applaud them, but I, I just, I'm not in that headspace. You nailed it. 20, you know, and when I was in my twenties, my, even my late teens, I mean, I was so ate up with deer hunting. I I mean, I was so excited for deer hunting that I would literally wake up in the morning on a Saturday morning before I go deer hunting. And I couldn't eat because I'd throw up. Like I was just so excited about it. And, uh, you know, I don't, I still love it, but I don't, I don't have that level of anxiousness about it anymore. And, you know, it's just, there's just a higher level. I don't want to say confidence, but there's just a, there's just a different level of enjoyment. It's like, you know, you hear about those, those five stages of a hunter and, uh, I'm certainly not to the sportsman stage, but I'm very much in the process stage. And I think that's why I like compartmentalizing these different aspects of deer hunting or these different aspects of, of my life. I'm just in that process stage and that's wholesale. It's not just with hunting. It's with everything else. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird where you find yourself. Cause you think, you know, it, you think something's so important at one point, Right. And then five years later, you don't care about it at all. And you move on to something else. And I, I've seen, you know, you see it like sometimes with the, uh, like you mentioned shed hunting, right? Like you're out there in New York 
not primo Iowa shed hunting ground. <laughs> you know, nope. like, you take the family out. You My probably, <laughs> yeah, you're probably not going to find one. I mean, we we have the same thing here in the cities. We and we, but we go a lot, and I just find myself like I'm like I don't care. Like I don't I I don't care if I find one or not. Yeah, I love it when we do. I love it when my little girls do, especially. But it's just like I just want to go walk in the woods. <laughs> like that's that's what this is for. And the shed is a bonus. And I, this is this is a message I'm trying to get across more and more with some of these podcasts and some of the some of the writing. Is the big buck thing doesn't matter as much as we think it does. Like it's not that important. And it's so you know we we get sucked into this in the hunting industry. I mean. I, Trophies have been a, a part of hunting since, you know, we've been hunting and it's, yeah. it's never going to go away. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but that emphasis on it and the, the kind of the laser focus on that, it's not, it's just not that important. Yeah. I, I think it's just more of the holistic experience. You know, I had a, one of my, one of my just top mentors who actually passed away a couple of years ago. I remember talking to him about the land that he owned and that he hunted and I talked to him after, you know, a hunt that he had and whatever else. And he'd tell me he went into a certain spot and he would say, you know, I didn't expect that I was going to have a good night in there. I just, I just kind of had this feeling like I wanted to go. It was, it was, you know, it was a nice day like today. And I wanted to go in there cause I know the way the sun comes through the the trees in there and the way the lighting is and the last hours just beautiful. And I wanted to experience that yesterday or whatever. And I remember at the time, you know, again, I was in my late twenties or maybe even mid twenties thinking to myself, like the hell is he talking about? And I've always, I've always had a high level of appreciation for that. You know, one of the things I say to my wife all the time, one of the reasons why I love elk hunting so much, especially going to Colorado is I get to see the leaves change twice. I get to see him change while I'm out west, and then I come home and I'm home for like two weeks, and then I get to see him change here again, and I I just love that transition of the seasons and and having the opportunity to experience that. And were it not for the fact that we were we're deer hunters or turkey hunters or fishermen or whatever, we wouldn't we wouldn't I don't think have the same level of appreciation for it and know what's happening with those trees to the same extent and why they're doing what they are. And, and, you know, I mean, how many times have you been sitting in a tree stand and a stiff breeze blows, right? And a whole bunch of yellow leaves just rain down on you. And you're like, man, that was cool. You know, I just, it's just one of those things. And again, I'm totally sounding like a hippie, but I, I just, I dig, I dig all of that. And that's just created such a larger experience for me. And I look forward more to those moments so much that I don't want to stymie them by pushing so hard throughout other times, times of year. And I, I just have so many instances in my life that I can point to where it was like, yeah, you pushed too hard there and, and it burned you out. You know yep. what I mean? I, I, uh, I've definitely had burnout in all things, whether it's, whether it's running or fishing or hunting or, you know, even, even some family stuff, you know, there's, there's just a level of, of burnout. And, uh, personally I need to offset and that's how I keep from burning out. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day about one of my businesses and I, and they're, they're like, you okay. You, you, you know, you burned out, you feeling burned out. I'm like, hell no, man. I have the highest level of energy for what I'm doing that I've ever had because I'm exercising different mental muscle and, 
you know, working on new things and, and doing things that I enjoy. And I make sure that I, my mom will always say to like, honor yourself with time or honor yourself. Like if you, if you want a thing, you know, find a, a way to get it and honor yourself with that thing. I mean, you know, and, and I've found that balance, I'm not saying I'm in equilibrium every day. Cause there are days where I'm way out, but, uh, it seems like at this point, you know, I'm in my forties and it seems like at this point I can, I can keep a lot more balls in the air and I'm just way happier. And I, I can think indelibly in my mind back to certain years where I was really, really happy and what was going on. I mean, the, when I was 32, I remember being really, really happy that year. My one business was just in a really good place. You know, I was, I was my, my, uh, my, first daughter was born. My second daughter was on the way, you know, and we were just in good stages with kids. And like, I just remember, I mean, distinctly remember being really happy that year, you know, and then, uh, you know, 2018, that was another year. Like, I just remember I was just really happy. I was working on some awesome projects with some awesome companies. Um, you know, I was doing a lot of running that year. I was training for very specific goals and I was following my program very acutely. And I had my, my probably arguably my best hunting year ever that year, you, you know, and, uh, yeah, just, just, I, I can think of several of those throughout the, the course of my life. And it just seems like when everything's sort of clicking, it's clicking and it's great. But I was, I was also making sure to accurately and acutely manage all of all the aspects of my life. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Cause you, so you and Jace Bowserman are two people I know in my life who make me feel like I don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> you guys make me feel like I'm lazy and you, I, I, you know, I, 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 we don't need to go into it too much, but I started running and lifting and really, really chasing the fitness thing about eight years ago when I quit drinking. And Jace of course was a huge inspiration to me, but so were you. Cause I was like looking at the, the trail running you were doing and the, the, the way that you operated not only to to hunt at home to hunt out west you know it's no small it's no small task to go from new york to colorado to hunt that's a that's a big deal and keeping yourself in elk shape all year and i was just like this is like this is a good example to follow and when you talk about like those those great years you had where like you you can remember like i was happy at 32 i was happy at this age is it is it because you just had that discipline dialed in so you were giving the things you needed as much time as they needed? I think so. Yeah, I, I, I do. I feel like – I think the other day you and I were talking on the phone and I was talking about my whiteboard. I, there's a whiteboard in the background. I operate off a whiteboard. I operate off of spreadsheets and I have – you know, this is for business but like I have, I have three columns like long-term, tomorrow, today. And when I operate off that whiteboard and I have a, I have a specific goal of what I want to get accomplished every day percentage wise, when I operate off that whiteboard, I get more done and I have a higher level of happiness because I can visually see my accomplishments every single day. Right? So you look at things like I was joking with you, I was logging my food right when we came on. Right. And it's just, if, if we want to achieve a result, we have to have KPIs, right? We have to have these key performance indicators of what what we're doing. So with with logging your food, okay, we're we're 
calculating macros or we're calcula- calculating calories and we're calculating activity and how many calories you can eat and all that stuff. And at the end of the day, every day, you have a number that you can look at. And at the end of every week, you, you, you know, you potentially have a number off the scale that shows the results. So, you know, um, I, 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 I strength trained harder over the winter. So I put on and I ate differently, not in a good way, <laughs> uh, than I, than I normally traditionally do over the, over the winter. And I think it was sort of COVID related and whatever else, but like I put on some muscle mass and I, and I put on some fat that came along with that. Now I'm looking at things and going, man, I don't want to be carrying all this around in the elk woods. I want to try and keep what muscle I can. Well, the thing that I need to do is I need to control my nutrition in order to do that. And I, and I know what years where I've had really good results at doing that are the years where I am really diligent about tracking. So that's one example of a place where if I'm managing and I'm tracking something, I see a result and that result creates happiness. And the same thing holds true for hunting. And you and I've talked before on podcasts about like making your decisions off of data rather than making your decisions off of just, just out of a whim and your gut is data sometimes. But you know, if you're, if you're tracking all those things, again, you have those metrics to utilize as you're doing it. And, you know, I'm not saying like go and track stuff when it comes to your kids or any of that, that'll, you'll drive them crazy, right? They don't have the the bandwidth for it. But, you know, in, in my world, when I'm keeping track of my stuff, I find the highest level of satisfaction and, and, and happiness because I'm, I'm accomplishing and I know it because I'm keeping track, you know, and, yep. Maybe that's a little nerdish, um, but that's okay because that's what works for me. <laughs> you know. Well, and, it's. And- I mean, it, it it's relevant because if you see, and I, I'm sure you get these too, but if you see the questions that you get from a lot of the listeners and a lot of the readers, they're kind of the same things over and over and over again. Like, what do you look for when you travel to, you know, X state to hunt public land, or you're on a new property? What do you look for? Or and it, it's it's kind of these recurring themes over and over again. And what it what I find really hard, like in, in the the data that gets lost in the message, is like my process, right? Like you have your process for managing your life because you're a busy guy and you know you're going to keep yourself in shape and you're going to do a lot of stuff to make sure you're happy in the whitetail woods and the elk woods. But that's yours. You know, a lot of people listening to this are not tracking their calories. <laughs> you know, like that's, it's no, not going to happen. But yeah, next year I probably won't be either. But you you've got this process down, and it and. I know for me, like, I don't go, let's say I just pick a random state and I'm going to go hunt public land there. I don't say I have to have, you know, 10 waypoints drop that I think are badass spots, right? But I know inherently if I've done enough e-scouting or not. Like, I know if I feel comfortable with the plan that I have in place and that's where the enjoyment comes in. The en- the enjoyment erodes when you're sitting there second guessing yourself going, man, I only have two spots. What if there's people in there? Or what if, you know, it's blowing out of the south and I can't hunt either spot. And so developing some kind of discipline like that is just far as saying like this season, I'm going into it. Even if you're staying at home hunting a lease, like you might be in New York or you're going somewhere else is like. Do, are you happy with your plan? Like, do you have a plan first? And then do you have enough spots set up? And if you don't, you know, if you can't 
put up a bunch of ladder stands or hang-ons? Do you have enough trees that you know you can saddle up in or a couple ground blinds? Like how, how comfortable are you with, with not just like opening week and maybe the rut, but everything in between? Do you feel good about it? And when you start sort of, and you don't have to get like crazy analytical about it, but when you start looking at it in those ways and going like, am I going to be satisfied with this? It kind of prompts you to get after it a little more because you know that feeling when you weren't prepared sucks. And you know that you didn't kill deer when you went into it and going, man, I only have two stands up. This doesn't feel very good. I'll have to get them up later. It's, it's not the best way to go about it for a lot of us. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, there's a, p- a point of a diminishing return when it comes to planning, too, because there's an element of me that really does like to kind of freewheel and freelance and just go and, and hit a place that's new or even hunting here at home. Like, I, c- I couldn't go and tell you, like, structurally like oh yeah i'm gonna hit this stand throughout the whole season i mean there's literally just depends upon how the wind blows right and and but i know that there are certain places on our farms that certain times a year on certain winds there's a high likelihood that's going to happen and that just comes with with a high level of experience and being on the same dirt for a really long time obviously when it comes to hunting that you don't have that same transition if you're if you're you know, bopping around on, on public, you know, if we go hunt elk or mule deer or whitetails in another place, I, I generally, like, I, I really like a lot of what like Mark Levisay has to say. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but you know, heat tree line pursuits, but like Mark talks about having like a hunt plan for elk hunting. And then, you know, these are your spots and this is, you know, looking for certain terrain features and whatever else. I really go into my Western hunts with those, those series of things. But what I've, what I've learned over the years is a lot of times, like you're saying, like e-scouting, something looks like one thing on the computer and then you get there and you're like, oh gosh, this isn't, this isn't what I had envisioned at all. You, you know, cause you're just, I don't care how good you are at e-scouting. Like, like there's just, there's just an element of it that there's a separation between digital and, and reality. And I mean, I could speak to that specifically 2018 Wyoming, my hunting partner, Eric and I went out and we, we get there and the terrain was totally different than I had expected. And it was, I, I remember like literally pulling in, I'm like, Oh, Eric, my, like, I think a bunch of my hunt spots are going to be bad. Like we're not going to be able to go to them at all, you know? And a few of them definitely were. And some of them turned out to be exactly what we had hoped they would be. But, um, you know, there's just, but, but we, we did like, we, we freewheeled it. Once we found certain terrain features that the elk seemed to be favoring given that time of year and the level of pressure that there was and whatever else, we'd be driving down the road and you could even see stuff from the road. You, you know, you can obviously see some topographical features and whatever else we are like, you know what, let's just for giggles, let's go try that spot tomorrow morning and, and see what happens. And, you know, we hit Pater really well by doing that. And it was, it was super fun. And, you know, that year we actually got displaced from our original hunt area because there was a really big wildfire and we actually, we had to go to another another area in the unit. And, uh, I think we only had between the two of us, like two hunt areas planned out in that spot. Everything else was on the other side of the unit. Well, I mean, we got in there and 
it was lights out. I mean, just awesome hunting. And we were already experiencing awesome hunting to, before that. So, uh, you gotta be flexible. I mean, I think that comes back to the happiness thing. Yeah. You know, if, if I get too regimented, like then my, like I was saying, my degrees of satisfaction for whatever activity there is starts to diminish as well. And then it becomes no fun. And, you know, then I become like an ADD kid. Okay, we're moving on. Let's do this. So. Well, it's, I mean, it, the thing that, that you brought up there with the e-scouting, that, that is the reality we don't talk about much where you're going to get it wrong most of the time. <laughs> it, like, I mean, it, you just do. And so you get in, but what it is, is sometimes you get it right and that's freaking awesome. But most of the time you're going to get it wrong, but it's getting you in there to look around and it's going to get you into these different spots and you go, okay, well, I'm, I walked in here and this thing sucks. Okay. Well, that's knock it off the list. You're, you're, you're just eliminating dead water. Like they say, when you're fishing, you know, but it's also, it gives you this really good lesson. And, and when you talk about elk, this is like, this gets driven home to you so hard when you elk hunt is, you know, you might get the east cutting right. You might get it wrong. But when you get in there and you're actually looking around, just trust the sign. Trust all the sign that you see. You know, and we, when we talk about sign all the time is, is rubs and scrapes, but it's, it's deer poop and it's trails and it's tracks and it's just general deer usage. That stuff doesn't lie. And so often, and you know this, when you go in and you hike into a spot that you're like, this is going to be the most badass funnel in the world. And you get in there and you look around and like, they're not there, but 300 yards from the truck, you crossed four trails that are all hubbed together for some reason. You're like, oh, this is too close. This is not where I need to be. And you realize like, I should have just listened to that. I mean, it, if you if you go hunt whitetails enough or elk, you just run into so many of those situations where you just doubt it because it's it doesn't fit into the plan you built. <laughs> like you're like, uh, okay, this sign looks good, but who cares? I'm going to, you know, my number one spot, and then you end up circling back to that place that you didn't expect, and it's it, it was all just written right there plain as day. And it, it, you have to, you have to have a few of those stinging lessons before you really start to listen to that stuff, I think. Well, and what you're describing in my mind is like experiential data, right? And you can carry those pieces of experience with you into each one of the new experiences that you're trying to create. So you can walk in and I mean, you've proven this better than anyone. You can walk into a piece of, of new ground, public, private, or whatever, and just look at certain things and generally be able to identify within course proximity of where the animals are going to be. Right. And it doesn't matter whether it's elk, antelope, whitetails, mule deer. Like once you start understanding what makes all of those species tick, like you can see stuff. I'm, my friend, Josh, turkey hunting, you know, just bandit. The guy's crazy about them. You know, they're just his thing. And I talked to him about e-scouting for turkeys. And I think to myself, like, just, just listen for them gobbling, like then go to them. And I don't profess to be the world's, you know, most enthusiastic turkey hunter, but he's got a whole system and a whole process and certain things that he looks for and distances and everything else. And that, that dude can walk onto a piece of ground and within three days, kill a bird. Boom. You know what I mean? Just done. And, you know, for some people, they're like, well, yeah, of course, but they've got, they've got that experiential data. Right. And for other people, they're like, oh, wow, that's pretty impressive, you know? And so I, I don't know. It, it's, but all of those things going back to what we keep talking about are like 
those are the things that make you happy. Those are the things that, you know, increase those degrees of satisfaction with what you're doing. And you're just, you're taking all these elements and, and mashing them together toward levels of success. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, your buddy who's, who's e-scouting for turkeys that, you know, I talk a lot about traveling to public land running and gunning and, and, you know, kind of mixing in a deer scouting and a turkey hunting plan or a, a turkey hunting trip. But you really do see that, you know, if you're heading, so you're going to go down to Nebraska and you're going to go bow hunt turkeys or run and gun them in the sand hills or whatever, you are going to be looking at, you're going to e-scout a lot, right? Like you're going to be looking for certain things and you're going to be pouring over that, that the available information you have, that doesn't make you a worse deer hunter, you know? And if, and it, that's, this is one of the things I always try to, it, nobody listens to me, but I'm going to say it anyway, like bow hunting turkeys, especially if you travel to public land to bow hunt turkeys, the parallels between that and and finding deer hunting spots are they're way closer than you'd think and it's partially just because turkeys like to walk certain places just like deer do and oftentimes they're the same places i mean we have i have hunting here around the twin cities where it, the best turkey spots to bow hunt are you know these little spines between two wetlands where they're going from you know food to roost or whatever and you know who walks through there too? All the freaking deer. Like there's, there's no difference, right? Or if there's an open gate or something stupid like that, it's, we, we kind of have undersold the, the extra value of turkeys besides they're awesome. Cause they gobble and you could shoot them in the face with a shotgun. But, but again, kind of like when you're out there, uh, fly fishing somewhere yeah, and you see some little thing happen, some, you know, something that levels up your critter sense just a little bit. The same thing happens when you're turkey hunting. The same thing happens if you go out small game hunting, if you're pheasant hunting with your dog in the late season. All of that stuff clues you into these little things in nature that just make you a better hunter. It's woodsmanship, maybe. That that's exactly right. Going back to the anecdote I talked about earlier with the with the watching the rabbit while I'm walking into a fly fishing hole. I mean, that is, you know, perfect example of of woodsmanship, right? You're paying attention to a thing. You know, how many times have you dropped your boat into a place that you've never fished before and you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at your, um, your, your depth finder or whatever. And it's like, Oh, okay. Well, look at that. There's a rock pile right there. Yeah. There's probably going to be some smallies on that rock pile because everywhere else there's smallies on rock piles like that. You know, it's just, it's the same thing with fly fishing. Like I can go onto a piece of water that I've never fished before and I'll, I'm patient. So I'll just stand and wait and watch, but I'll just watch what the water's doing or, you know, obviously the polarized glasses, you can see a lot of the, the bottom of the, and, and where depths change and whatever else. And, you know, just, I look for things that I like, you, you know, and, and, and then I feel confident in that spot more than if I see things that I don't like, obviously. So, you know, then I'll end up wetting a line and sometimes it pans out and sometimes it, it doesn't, but that's, that's also what keeps us kind of coming back for more, you, you know? So, um, but you know what to look for, I guess. Ultimately, that's what we're talking about. Turkeys, you know, everything. Well, I, I think I think it goes even deeper than that. I, I had this this kind of light bulb moment probably about, I don't know, I think four years ago, something like that. I was I went pheasant hunting and it was it was I think probably back half of November. We didn't have snow yet, but anyway, we went out. I was I was hunting with my wife's uncle. We hit this little 40 acre chunk that had a cattail slough and then it had just a bunch of CRP grass and then there were there were private egg fields across the fence, you know? And so most people go in and they walk the fence line. You know, they've seen this on, they've studied this, this habit in 
upland hunters a lot. They've, you know, they know we follow the same routes all the time. The pheasants figure that out. And we had gone out and we had hunted the way most people do. Then we cut through the middle and we ended up, I think we killed three birds out of there. I don't think we got our limit, but we got close. And I just remember like sitting at the truck, you know, we were watering the dogs and I was like, I think we killed those pheasants in a staging area. (laughs) Cause they were like, they were full, their crops were full. They'd already gone out and eaten and they'd come back, but they weren't back in the really thick, gnarly stuff. They were kind of in this little transition stone transition zone. And when you, when you, spend time doing that stuff. Or like you mentioned the smallies, like they, they, you know, they go up on the bank and they spawn. Right. And then they, they back off and they recover a little bit and maybe a little bit deeper water. And then they move into their summer pattern where they might be on those deeper rock piles and everything happens for a reason. Like there isn't a lot of randomness there, you know? And like, I think it's easy to look at pheasants or rabbit hunting or something like that and go, well, it's just, you know, there's just randomness. Like they're just here because they live here. Well, they're right here in this specific spot right now for a reason. The same thing happens, you know, if guys go elk hunting, it's like, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to bugle in a bull because they're out covering ground everywhere and they're going to, somebody's going to come in and you know, those elk are hanging around the cows because those cows are living their life to not get shot and not get bumped all around. And they're feeding in these meadows at midnight and they're doing whatever. And there's a, there's a total method to the madness. Like it's not random, just like with the whitetail rut, the more we study that there's a lot less randomness to it. And I'm sure there's some randomness to it, but when you start figuring out those trout that are, you know, in the negative feeding pattern, they're just hanging there and you can see them, they're not doing anything. And all of a sudden they move down to that seam below that rock. Now he's eating like all of that stuff feeds this, this level of just like, okay, I have a little more confidence now. Cause I don't, I'm not relying on crossing my fingers and hoping that buck comes by. I assume he's here and he wants to be there and I'm going to go between. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, it, we experience it all the time. I mean, there's, there's nothing that happens in nature. I think, well, I mean, sorry, that's an absolute statement. Um, but there's few things that happen in nature just randomly. You know, we want to believe that it happens randomly, but I, I, I struggle with that. You know, I mean, that you could take that into so many other conversations, but like, you know, it's kind of back to the food thing. There's nothing that happens randomly with food. You know, fuel does certain things for you and it has a direct result and everybody's a little bit different, but you know, I don't know, you got to just pay attention to those trends, I guess, whether they're personally or other things. Yeah. And I mean, I think you could make the case, you know, if you sit there and watch it's say you're, you're back in some kind of staging area and you're watching a buck kind of make a few rubs and he's kind of browsing around. He, he might randomly walk 75 yards your way and browse over there. Like that, that might just be like a little whim he has. Right. But him being there in that spot at that time probably isn't random. Right. You know, for sure. It's the same thing. Like, you know, the elk, that the, the bull that you run into that's just screaming his goddamn head off and he's a gift, you know, like in, in, in a place you don't expect. Like, yeah, maybe he just, maybe he got his ass kicked and he's going to look for somebody else or something. And there might be an element of randomness to it, but there's probably so much going on that we don't understand that it's just like, it's easier for us just to default to that explanation because we, we will never know. Well, we, I have a, an example of the elk thing. I'm talking like I have like, you know, elk are my primary thing and they're really, I mean, they're not, but like we were, we were in Colorado in 2017 and we're literally in our campsite in a campground 
and we're just there having lunch. We'd hunted in the morning and I just so happened to set up my spotting scope <clears throat> and it's, it's just sitting there on the tripod. I, I, I don't even know why I did it. Maybe it was in preparation for going to glass something that evening or whatever. And we're, we're literally sitting in camp chairs. I got my spotter next to me on the right. And I just see this giant ass bull start walking. This is, this is a campsite that's like right off of a major road. There's no, there's, there's no rhyme or reason in my mind why that bull is out cruising in the mid, this is midday to go and, and look for cows. I mean, that's exact, just like you see out of a whitetail buck head down, you know, trying to take in, fill those olfactory glands, whatever. That's exactly what he's doing, right? He is just cruising. And I'm like, why would he be up in that spot? That makes no sense to me. Well, I didn't have any experience with that area. So that evening we decide we're going to at least go and try and not, not even that evening after we watched him walk off, we thought he went and maybe went to this one little draw and then it went down to a big reservoir actually. Well, lo and behold, when we went over there, they had clear cut, the beetle kill was really bad in that area and they had clear cut this whole area and it was all these, all these young conifer trees that were growing back. And then where that bull had walked was actually like a big spine, right? And, just before it took a big drop, there was this heavy, thick, brushy area. So that bull was basically going from one big block of timber that we couldn't figure out from our location and then going through those two, those two areas essentially that were likely bedding areas, working the wind and the thermals to his advantage and then going down into this other block of timber to take security. And, you know, we never, ca we never caught up with that bull, obviously never killed him or anything, but it's just one of those things where you th you, you look at something at, on the surface and you go, well, that, like, there's nothing there. And that seems so random, but it wasn't random at all. Like he was totally working around the people. I mean, it was, it was a real eye opener for me, to be honest with you. It just, just, just showed that th there's always purpose, yep. you know what I mean? Or, or something that's happening with those I, animals. There's always purpose. I think that that's, I mean, that, that's part of the reason winter scouting so popular for whitetails right now is, you know, you, you hunt all season on a property and then, you know, you kill something, you don't, whatever. But in March you go in there and you just walk through everything. You don't have those reservations. Like, I don't want to go into what I think is the better. You just look at everything and you go, man, they were using this like crazy. Or with the woods being as wide open as it is, you're like, I see this perfect little subtle ridge Yep. that I never paid attention to before. And I'll tell you what, man, I started it, when I have the opportunity uh, and it's, it's totally random, but if I kill a buck somewhere and I have a few days, like if I'm hunting with my buddies and it, my favorite thing is if I kill something early and all I can, all I have to do is scout and help everybody else out and take some pictures. I love going into the places that I either killed one or I had a good encounter and really sniffing around right after just to see why, why did he come down this hill or where, where was he going or what, what was really like, what's the bigger picture here besides I saw this deer come down and do this thing. And it's so valuable, man. Like I, and it, and, and then you can keep kind of going back to it. You know, like I, the example that I like to use is that I ran across this, this really big buck in Northern Wisconsin a couple of years ago, like a 160, just a, just a killer buck, public land, big woods deer, you know? 
And what he did caught me so off guard and I ended up killing a different buck that night. And so the next day I'm like, I'm going back in there. I just want to look around. Like I wanted to see this rub he made just cause I kind of wanted to go look at it. But I was like, it was just, it was like such a cool thing to see in such a big deer in such a weird place. I'm like, I just got to go in there. Like, I want to just know. And I went back in there and it was, it was like so much more benchy. Like it felt like a, a elk spot, right? Like when you walk in there and you're like, okay, there's halfway down this hill or these bluffs, there's like this perfect bench. And it was like, it, like the picture became so much more clear. And I went back in there last winter and walked around again and went up there, went, went farther back into this property and found just a few more things like this really interesting edge between, it must be between like a, I don't know, 20 years ago, they must've logged it. And then 10 years ago, they must've logged it. There's an edge in there, you know, and it's not like a, it's, it's, it's a soft edge, but it's like obvious. And I, you know, he was tucked in, there was a big bed tucked in back there, 50 yards beyond that. And it just, it made me that one sighting and that one really cool night sitting on stand. I'm like, I, I feel like I got lucky with that. Even though I had scouted quite a bit to get in there, I didn't even have a I didn't know 2% of what was going on in there. And I still feel like I know about 9%, but right. that I feel like that's still valuable because it starts to explain like, okay, you know, I don't, you'll never know why he was actually there, but it sure looks like he was using those benches a lot. And he had a lot of advantages being in there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That, that exploration and that um, opportunity to learn something new is, is so much fun, but it's, Again, it's the same stuff that you've learned in other places, just applied to a new spot. And now you've got that cash cashed out in your mind and okay, ready for the next time you go back there, which is cool. Yeah. You, so. Do you know where I think the most, most valuable, I mean, what could be the most valuable time you could spend in the woods, like along this vein is, is going in after a gun season. Like go after, go in after the general gun season ends, like a day later and walk through everything. And figure out where you jump the deer because it's like, I, I'm sure you've done this out in New York. Like it's such a freaking eye opener sometimes where they hole up and how many deer can hole up in a spot that you just don't go into because you can't shoot far. <laughs> and it's, it's a, it's, it's such, I think it would be the best strategy for being a rifle hunter in a place that gets a lot of pressure. Yes, definitely. Yeah. We, we experience plenty of that here and you know, sometimes people talk about, I remember reading a Jim Shockey article way, 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 way back when, when he used to write for North American hunting club, he talked at how, I believe it was Jim Shockey. He said that he didn't believe that deer went nocturnal. He believed they went bush turnal. And that's kind of exactly what you're talking about. Right. So they just, you take that core area and shrink it, shrink it way down. You could probably still experience some pretty good activity, but you have to, you have to kind of be like right in that spot or right adjacent to that little spot where they're taking refuge, especially during those higher pressure seasons, like we experience here, Wisconsin gets and Pennsylvania and Michigan, you know, they don't just up and disappear and they don't crawl underground like squirrels or rabbits. So they gotta be, they gotta be somewhere. So, but I'm I'm always blown away by how many deer will congregate together that time of year. I mean, it's just unbelievable, you know, cause they, again, they're, all going to take refuge in small areas. Yeah. It's, I had a, I had such a cool lesson on this when I was like probably 13 or 14 years old, we used to hunt this, this area in Southeastern Minnesota that, uh, 
we had permission on a bunch of different properties. It was a lot of land. And it was kind of like this giant peninsula-looking piece of land that was framed in by the Root River. So it was a lot of bluffy, you know, bluff country type stuff. And there was a cabin that we stayed in. It was one of my dad's friends. And so we would, you know, we'd, we'd stay there and then you'd go out, walk or, you know, drive down the road and park or whatever. But we always originated from there. And then during the gun season, the places we could hunt would kind of shrink because some of those landowners only gun hunted, you know, and we were bow hunting. And my dad one time wanted to just keep hunting during the gun season. So he said, well, I'm just going to drop over the hill behind the cabin down that just went straight down to the river where we never, ever, ever went because there's nothing there. And he went down there and was covered in deer. And he's like, you got to go down there. And there was an old permanent stand, like four feet off the ground on this hillside, you know, and I will never forget because, you know, for us at that time, when the Minnesota gun season started, our, our bow season was kind of functionally over. Like we would get back into it a little bit in the late season, but we had weeks where it was like, we could, we, we usually couldn't hunt or wouldn't hunt. And then, you know, you got that hangover period after the gun season where it's just tough if you're on, if you're on pressure ground. And I remember walking over that hill and seeing a buck stand up and just like, holy shit, I've never seen that in my life, you know? And he was like a two-year-old, which to, to us then is like a 170 now. Right. And yeah. he took off and I just went and got in that stand and almost immediately, I can't remember how many deer I missed that night. I think I missed three times. I can't remember exactly, but I had does come through and I missed only does, but it was like, I saw like 11 deer that night. And it was one of the most amazing times I've ever had on stand. And I just remember hearing gunshots and and going into it thinking, this is going to be a total waste of time. Because all I've ever thought in my life is when gun season starts, it's over. And all those deer did was just congregate in this one bluff side, you know, over the river where people didn't go. And, you know, we, we burned it right out <laughs> after a couple of days. But it was, it stuck with me to this day. Yeah. Yeah. There was nothing in there, right, by your description, except all of the deer. Yeah, more deer than I've ever seen in one sit in my life, you know? Right, yeah. But I yeah. think I think that we, I, I, I could point to so many times in my life, hunting life, where that's happened. And I just love it. I love it in the same way I love these people out there like Alex Honnold, who climbed El Cap, you know, the free solo dude. And I, I, I love people who show us what can't be done. And I love seeing those things where you're like, I know for a fact, this is not going to work. And then it works. I, it's, I think we need that stuff in life. And I think that's part of like a sneaky reason why we're so drawn to hunting. I, absolutely. I mean, I, again, kind of going back to an earlier part of the conversation, I think that's why some of us are self-employed too. You know, we just, uh, we just look at it and we go, yeah, I just, I gotta, I gotta try and figure out how to do it on my own. I need to find that edge of failure. And if I cross it, whoop, I know that I got to step back. Hopefully it's not catastrophic failure, but I mean, you know, we're just towing that line all the time and that's, that's okay with me. I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I, I mean, you know, it's nice to have support without a doubt when there's opportunities, but, um, you know, I just, I personally just, I, I like taking that risk. I mean, it's the same thing like why we do these challenging activities physically too. It's just, it's kind of taking that risk and, and challenging yourself and seeing where, where the edge is for you and everybody's edge is different, you know, but I like to test that, test that boundary, even to the point where some days this morning is a, a perfect example. Like I found myself at the gym and I was like, ah, 
you know, yeah, that's pretty rough. Uh, um, I'm going to, I'm going to stop at this many reps or whatever. And I was like, no, you know, kind of check yourself. No, you, you're going to experience growth when you, when you challenge yourself and challenge that boundary. And, you know, some days I'm more motivated to do it than others too. Yeah. Well, motivation is motivations like happiness it's a moving target man yeah uh, that's the way that's true pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service it's called the wellness company picture this okay you wake up you got a scratchy throat you're all congested you got a runny nose you got a cough whatever and you weigh your options like you tough it out get sick take time off work Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription. And you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, N- Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. So we had a conversation the other day, and we got kind of got on this topic, and I didn't want to talk about it anymore because I wanted to talk about it on this podcast. But what do you say to people who say they don't have time? Because this, this happens all the time with the workout stuff. This happens with the hunting. Like, well, yeah, if I had the time to scout that you do, oh, if I had the time to run that you do, what do you say to people? Because you, you're a busy guy and you make the time. Uh, my feeling is, and it's okay that this is the case, uh, my feeling is that you don't have the priority. 
if if you if you don't have the time then you don't have the priority and that's all right if that's your answer but i think we need to be a little bit more honest with ourselves in that capacity so like i had a conversation not all that long ago and someone was asking me if i if i had done something or or gone and seen something or whatever and i and i was literally just about to like have the words i haven't had time cross my lips and i i was like whoa hold on. And I stopped myself. And I said, you know, it just hasn't been on my priority list just yet. It kind of, it was higher and it sort of fell down in lieu of other things. So, um, you know, that's the thing for the things that we really want, we, we make time, you know, and, and if that's, you know, if that's elk hunting, we, we make time. If it's training, we make time. If it's family, we, we make time. And people ask me all the time, they're like, man, how do you, how do you run businesses? And, and do this. And do you ever see your family? Yeah, man. Uh, you know, I have dinner with my family five nights a week. I, I cook. I cook the majority of those meals. I. But I, kind of back to my thing about time management earlier. I time block for that. And then some nights are really basic. You know, breakfast for dinner. We're having eggs or pancakes or whatever. You know, simple things. But um, you know, because that's what we've that's what we've been able to earmark. But. Um, you know, and then and then other things are a little bit more extravagant. A four-hour Hank Shaw recipe that I'm checking on midday as I'm doing everything else in my office at, at home. I'm I'm fortunate in that I work from home, but I think you know, in the wake of the pandemic, a lot of people are fortunate that they they work from home. And you know, I, I'm just not one of these types of people who gets distracted by by things. Uh, you know, I don't get distracted by the refrigerator. I don't get distracted by the television. I rarely get sucked into the the youtube vortex that often anymore it happens on occasion but it's but it's rare because that whiteboard tells me the stuff that i have to get done every day for business and if that doesn't get done then that spills over into into personal things you know my kids will always joke with me they're like dad how come your phone gets to use the charger in the truck more when we need it, you know, we, we got to do our games. And I'm like, cause this is the one that makes the money. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is the one that makes it so we can go and do whatever, you know? And, but it, that's the same thing. If you transition that it's, it's a matter of, of priority. And, and for me, like, you know, kind of where we started, there are certain times where, you know, whitetail scouting falls down my priority list or going to trim a tree stand or, you know, maybe I couldn't do it during daylight hours. So, you know, I have to, I have to do it after dark and people are like, what, how the hell do you do that? It's like, man, you got to get a a really good headlamp and you know, you just, you go in and you, you start, especially when you know your ground, but you, you just, you make it happen. And, um, you know, instead of laying in bed and scrolling Instagram, uh, I'll be, I'll be doing that. And I'm not trying to paint myself as like, I'm working or grinding or doing whatever all the time. I mean, I take plenty of time to, to sit down and have a campfire with my kids or, um, you know, I walk my, I walk my dogs with my wife just about every night. And that's, that's about a 40 minute walk and that's time for her and I to catch up. And, um, and I love that time. I don't always, I have a GSP as you know, Tony, and I don't always love walking that GSP, but (laughs) cause she, she, uh, she struggles to be a lady sometimes, but like, you know, but I, but I love that time with, with my, my wife and, and I, and I, I think she enjoys the time with me too. And we always talk about things and, and we, we get a lot accomplished and that's something that I, 
I set time aside for. And then we usually come home and we have a, a chore or two to do. And we do that and we get the girls ready for bed. And I might have to grab a few more minutes for work or phone up on a phone call or, or maybe that's my or whatever. But um, yeah, it's just a it's just a matter of of priority. If you want something, you you make it. And that for me, that's that's bled through with business too. I mean, if, if, if I want to make a deal happen or I want to, um, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I have to invest the time into it. There's just, and if I don't, then it wasn't that important to me. And, yeah. and again, that's my choice and that's okay. If that's somebody's choice, I don't judge them for that, but I, I just really struggle with, that excuse. My, my one buddy can send me like 20 podcasts, right? And he'll be like, you gotta listen to these podcasts. And I'm like, I, I, that I'll say I don't have time for because I, it's not a priority for me. Cause <clears throat> like we've talked about, I, I don't really listen to music when I run or train. I don't really listen to podcasts. I'm solely focused on that. And I'm not trying to paint myself as being this like really staunch disciplinarian on myself. I'm just, that's just how I operate best. And I know if I, kind of put in the deliberate practice on, on something, it, it works best for me. And, uh, you know, I'll grab a podcast in the truck when I'm driving somewhere or, you know, I go to the post office a couple days a week and, you know, go to the podcast, go to the post office, listen to half a podcast on the way there, the other half on the way home. And, you know, that works. Or I'll take a little detour to go check out one of my running spots or a fishing spot or, you know, whatever. And gives me a few extra minutes and that type of thing. But, those are those are my priorities, and that's what's meaningful to me. So, I, I I invest in them. Yep. Well, and you you know when you talk about you know making the time to go cut shooting lanes or or doing it when you can, I think I think that message you know this when this really became something I had to do. You know when you when you have two babies at the same time, your free time. <laughs> yeah goes, it doesn't, I don't, I don't give a shit what anybody says. Like you, all of a sudden your world changes. Right. And so that was, when that happened, it was like, okay, now you're going to have, instead of seven or 10 days to hunt, you're going to have four days for this trip. Or instead of making four or five trips to Southeastern Minnesota or over to Wisconsin to hang stands and put up cameras and do all this stuff, you're going to have two days this summer or four days this summer. It really made me go, man, I, I was taking sort of the easy way out a lot of times where I'd go, you know, get a stand up. Okay. That was good enough for today. Let's go catch some trout or something like that. And now, or, you know, when, when something like that happens in your life, you have those moments where it's like, okay, you know, you got to get this stuff done. You know, you're going to have enough time if you really bust your ass. So do that and, and get it done. And you realize, you start to realize like how efficient you can be with some of this stuff. And it's kind of like, you know, you talk about the work from home thing versus going into the office you know, like when you go from an office job, that's a nine to five or to working from home, you're like, man, I used to waste a lot of time in that cubicle. <laughs> you oh, know, like, yeah. Cause I had to be there for eight hours and I had three hours of work that day. And so you make the rounds and you talk to people and you drink a bunch of coffee and you go out for a long lunch and you just, you realize it, it makes you a little bit more aware of time. And it's the same thing when you have those moments in your life, like, uh, you know, when we had the girls, I'm like, okay, now my time, I took it for granted before how much time I had. I don't have that anymore. So I better use it much more wisely. I know, I know you've had a few moments in your life 
where I'm sure that's happened. And one of them, you know, for the listeners, you know, your wife had to battle cancer not that long ago. I'm sure that was one of those moments in your life where you're like, okay, this, this time is the commodity that I'm worried about now. This is important. Yeah, for sure. That was, I would say that was the biggest perspective changer for me. Um, there was no more room for procrastination because I'm, I'm human, right? So procrastination still creeps into my life. And, you know, I would procrastinate before. I mean, not miserably because I was always a, a get shit done kind of guy, but um, but it was just different. And when 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 she was sick, I mean, it just obviously takes takes everything and kind of turns it on its ear. And you know, she, so she, she you know she had chemo, you know, every other week, and then it was just you know balancing things around that schedule. So that was the, that was like the center of everything. Every Wednesday, she had treatment for these hours, and then you know, generally she would feel good. And I went, I went with her to every single treatment and, um, you know, and then by Friday was when she would start to not feel well or Thursday, you know, Thursday evening into Friday, she starts to, the chemo would catch up with her. She would start not to feel well. And so we made a plan and we had, we were fortunate. And then we had really good support with our, with our families, you know, both our moms and dads were, were really supportive and helped us out a lot. But like we built out a structure, but like back to the, doing stuff at night thing. I mean, that's candidly where all that came from, you know, like as soon as she would fall asleep on, on a, on Friday evening, usually early, I was out the door to go do work. And, and I mean, I did it the entire time that she was sick because I wasn't taking anything away from her and we had already sort of vetted out that she generally wouldn't need me. She just needed to sleep. You know, she wanted to be, you need to be without disruption. And it wasn't like I was super far away. I was 25 minutes away. So she did need me. I could get home quick, but I knew I had things that I needed to do or, you know, um, I didn't elk hunt that year. I drew a really good tag that I surrendered. Um, but, uh, you know, we, I, I still, I still made time to train. I just, I just swapped my schedule around getting up a little bit earlier or, or doing it at night after she would go to bed and, whatever else. Cause I was just, again, managing my priorities. But like you said, what really changed there is my daughters at the time, I have two girls and they were four, if I remember this right. Yeah. They were four and eight. So as you can imagine, as you know, kids at that age, they're independent to a certain extent, but they still aren't independent enough where they can just run rough shot or fully take care of themselves. I mean, shoot right now. I mean, they would live on cereal if we'd let them. So, I mean, that's just one small <laughs> example, but you know, they, they required a lot of stuff and mom wasn't always able to step into that role. She did an amazing job and she was incredibly strong, far stronger than I could ever be. Uh, and I could, you know, I could ever sort of imagine being, but, um, you know, I had to step into places where candidly, I, I, I wasn't used to, to, to being, you know, because she, for a long time, she couldn't lift anything. And she, you know, there was just, there's just all sorts of things that I took for granted is the best way that I can describe it. And one of those things that I took for granted was the freedom that she allowed me by the time that she gave me to go do my own things. And that was the priority shift was, okay, uh, she, you know, she's given up a lot of her life and a lot of her time so I can have it. And, you know, the, the real eye opener was there was a lot of things that I was doing in my life at that point that I, I had tricked myself into thinking I was doing for my family or for, you know, for whatever. And it was not, it was just for me. You know, I was trying to, 
at work. I was trying to achieve and earn at a high level. And I was saying like, oh, I want to do this to support my family. It wasn't. It was to fuel my ego or it was to fuel a part of me that was missing or whatever. And like, you know, and so when that all happened, I realized like what mattered, what didn't matter. And, you know, re again, realigned and recentered my entire life. And, and, I, and I do find myself on occasion like drifting out. The other day I was like, okay, this year I drew a, a Montana elk tag and I was like, okay, you know, the Montana's dates are a little bit later. And the person that I'm hunting with is saying like, come later in the month. I'm like, Hmm, can I maybe squeeze in? Can I, you know, can I buy a landowner tag in Colorado or New Mexico and squeeze in a little extra time or whatever? And I'm like, Hey man, no, too much time away from family, too much time away from, from business. Like, no, just, just come to the resolve that you got a really good tag, focus your energy on that, make that your priority. Don't fragment yourself. And, you know, that's, that's been one of the big lessons for me and is a really big capstone in my, in my life with all of this stuff. Yeah. When you, um, I I have to imagine like that experience, it makes you just hyper cognizant of how lucky you are to still get to do this stuff. And, and probably, I, I don't know about you. So, so correct me if I, if, if I'm wrong here, but I, I get into this weird space where, I, I can't wait to leave, you know, like, I'm like, Oh my God, I can't wait to go on this hunting trip. And then you get out there for a few days and it's like, God, I really miss my kids. Like I really miss my family. But yeah. if you have, and this, this is a missing component of great trips for most people is if things are good at home, if everybody's happy, works good, they're not calling you, your, your spouse is happy, your kids are happy. That's, those are the trips that you go out and you come back and whether you kill something or not, you're like, that was freaking worth it. That's why I do it. And I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen this with your hunting partners, especially doing a bigger, you know, Western hunt, which is a big commitment for you guys out there in the Northeast. Like you get, you get out there, you get on the road, you got two days on the road, then you get out there and you're two, three days in the back country. And all of a sudden your hunting partner is like not having it anymore and thinking about getting back or the wife's calling all the time and it changes the whole dynamic. And it's, it's a hard thing to get through until you've, you've done a few of these trips and have that, you know, like, yeah, that homeostasis, right? Like, you know how to make sure everything's going to be good at home. So you can go do this thing and really appreciate it, not feel guilty, not worry about getting back home and just, that's like, we, we don't talk about that a lot. We kind of, we kind of glorify this traveling hunting stuff because, you know, we, we've figured out how to really enjoy it, but we figured out how to enjoy it because we've been through a lot of the bullshit that can, that can happen and make it not fun. And that's, that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. It's funny for me, it takes a few days <clears throat> to sink in before I can actually enjoy it. I, I'm, I'm usually sort of stressed out during the travel process. Cause we, we pretty much drive everywhere. So we have control over our gear and stuff, but like, you know, so if we go to Idaho, that's like a 32 hour drive for us from here. And, you know, so I'm spending 32 hours, like biting my nails, catching up on all my emails. And then the next two days of three days while I'm transitioning and sort of letting myself unwind and get focused on the hunting and whatever, I'm just not, on my game and then, and then I'll get in the zone. And then I'm, I'm, I just really recognize my own faults or starting to recognize my own faults. Then I'm good for a few days and then I kind of pop out and I'm not good again. I get anxious about what's going on at home. I get anxious about business and, and other things. And if, if I have enough time, 
I'll, I'll drift back in and then feel comfortable. But you know, when I used to do stuff again, when I back in my twenties and when the kids were young, I'd just be like, man, if I had one or two more days, if I had one or two more days, and now I find myself, I get to the end of the trip and I'm cutting a trip a day short or a half a day short or whatever. Cause I'm like, I, I, I just, I got to call it quits at this point. Like I'm done. My mind is not here. It's here. And, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about this too. And I was saying like, when I get to that point, what I really need to do is go to town, catch up on all my emails, spend an hour on the phone with my wife, getting a full data dump, you know, talk to all the people that I need to talk to, get comfortable again, maybe go fish for an afternoon, wet a line or an evening or whatever, get my mind off of elk hunting or deer hunting or whatever. And then the next day kind of dive back into it, knowing that I have however many days left or we have however many days left and, you know, have that full immersion and that full commitment. And, uh, it's taking me, it's taken me a, you know, again, that's a newer phenomenon for me. Like I would say it's in the last five years, but it's taken me a few, a few years to really identify that fault in myself. You, you know, I just, I, you know, uh, I, because I, because of the way my mind works, I just get anxiety about things. It's one of the reasons why I train so much and, and everything else. And it's just when I'm away from those things, it's, again, especially being a business owner, there's, there's, you know, I don't have a huge business. I don't have like a bunch of employees. I don't have a bunch of people that I can delegate things to. So if I'm not doing things, things are falling because they're my responsibilities. They're falling. I can't, I can't scale them into something else, you know, or someone else. And, uh, you know, I, I have to pay attention to those. And, um, you know, I've just identified that about myself and I've had to change how I operate. I mean, case in point, uh, two weekends ago, I went down to the Catskills in New York here. We have a camper. I pulled my camper down there and I left Friday night. <laughs> so I didn't take any time off Friday. I left after normal work hours, drove down, got my rig set up, went out and did an hour of fishing. But where I was camping, no cell phone service at all. And so, which is awesome because no cell phone service at all, but tolerable because no cell phone service at all. I was like freaking out, you know, for two days. I was just like, oh gosh, you know, and I'd run into town and call home and check in or whatever. But, um, it just stressed me out. And then finally on Sunday, I was coming home Monday morning. Finally on Sunday, I kind of dipped into the groove just in time to go home. <laughs> you know, and I, I was saying to my wife, as I was driving home, I'm like, I finally kind of get into the point, to the point, excuse me, where I'm fully starting to relax. And then I have to come home. I was fortunate in that we were going back to the same place the following weekend. I just I left the camper down there and whatever else. So I, I knew I had some more days to earmark and whatever. But, uh, you know, it's just, that's just the way that my mind works. And I have to, I have to acknowledge that and not try and fight certain things or, or, or figure out ways to hack it or improvement. And I, I just haven't gotten to that point yet. Yeah. So it's a weird thing when you, when you realize that, you know, we, we talk about hunting as something that we just love and we're obsessed with and we can't wait to go do, but there are times when you go on a trip or there's times where you go hunting where you're like, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't totally. be doing this. I don't want to be here. And it's a weird, that's a weird thing to talk about. I mean, I, I talk about this a lot with like excuses, right? Like people say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to sit because it's too hot. I'm not going to sit because it's too windy. I'm like, don't you want to hunt? Like, why are you making excuses to go? And yet I'll go on trips 
where I've done the same thing. There's, there's been times where I'm like, I don't ever want this to end. Like I want to just keep going. And then there's times where I'm like, I'm considering going home three days early. Like I am, I'm out my, I'm in, I'm in the wrong headspace or just something. It's, it's hard to manage. It's, it's, it's and even, even if you get to do it a lot, like you and I are both pretty lucky. We've, we've done a lot of hunting trips and spent a lot of time out there solo, spent a lot of time out there with buddies. And you just never know when that's going to, that's going to hit you. And it's just, it just is the reality of the game. And I'll never forget, like, you know, we talk about, having a good support system at home. I think it was, I think it was three years ago. I was out in North Dakota in the middle of October and my buddy who was with me, he had to go home early. So I was, I had a couple, I think I had, I think I had five days to hunt and he had to leave after like day three or something. We had kind of, you know, like we had, he had got there earlier and then he had to go. And then I got there a little later and could stay later, whatever. And I had I kind of got my ass kicked. And then I had these bucks dialed had three of them coming in. It was like a 90 to 130 inch or three of them browsing their way in. They had like 45 minutes to cover 60 yards. I'm like, this is over. Whichever one gives me the best shot. This, you could just see it. Like this is working. This is everything's right. And then I had some dude drive in down this two track where they're not supposed to be driving, blew the whole goddamn river bottom out. And I just remember thinking, Oh my God, it took me days to get on these deer. And it, and, and it was just, it, the worst part about it was they, the river bottom exploded. There was deer freaking running everywhere. And I saw those headlights, God damn it. And so I, I was watching him and I knew the bucks in front of me had taken off. And so I'm just like in my stand, I'm like, uh, I guess, you know, I'll ride it out or whatever, but you know, done. I'm like mentally I'm gone. And I moved and I looked down and one of those bucks hadn't spooked and he was still in the willows right by the river and he was looking right at me and he ran away. And I was just like, <laughs> can't freaking win, man. And I went back to camp that night and I think I was supposed to leave the next day or two days later. And I had also been on, there, there, were, there was another spot that was really tricky to hunt with the wind, but there were big ones on it. And I, I just couldn't get in there. I kept trying to talk myself into it. And anyway, I went, I went home or I went up on the hill, called my wife. I'm like, I'm, I'm coming home. And she's like, well, aren't you on those big ones in that other spot? And I was like, yeah, but it's, it's a freaking lost cause. Like, and she just talked me into it. She's like, just stay. Everything's fine here. You got nothing else going on. Just, just stay and ride it out. And I ended up not being able to hunt that spot, but the, my secondary spot. And as soon as I walked in there, I killed a great buck couple minutes on stand. And it was just one of those things where like, I was ready to go. And my wife was like, you know, you just, just ride this out. And like, that doesn't happen very often. Like that's a nice thing to have happen. You know, the, the, the thing that you have to realize is when you're there, you're there, you're already, you know what I mean? You're already here. And if you pull the plug early, and again, I'm guilty of pulling the plug early. If you pull the plug early, then it's, then it's, and it's over. Like, you know, in sales, I say all the time, like, okay, well, if I never ask the person, I've already determined that the answer is no. So I have to at least have them give me the no or the maybe or whatever, right? You know, so I could totally transition that into a different conversation. But, <laughs> uh, you know, like, that's the thing. You're, you're already there. And I can think back to so many hunts, especially when we used to hunt Colorado a lot, where we just, we bailed out a little bit early because we were afraid that the spot that we were getting into the elk, that we were going to kill an elk. And then, you know, we were going to have to pack it out and it was going to take us over our time limit. And, you know, I, I used to hunt with these two guys there at the same time. And, 
you know, I think back and, you know, again, I was self-employed at that time and they both worked for other people. And I look back at it and I'm like, man, you know, from my perspective, we just had to ask for permission to come back a half a day later or a, a day later from work. I don't know that it would have been a, that big of a deal. Um, you know, I know like these days, my one buddy, his, his schedule is like really regimented with his employer, but, um, you know, but it's, it's just one of those things Like we, I just, I find myself just getting up against the, the, the end of things. And there are times where I'll say to myself, like, eke this out until the very last second, because it can happen at the very last second. I mean, there's so many instances where that has happened. And then there's plenty of more that it didn't happen, you know, but you don't know unless you stick it out. And that's, again, personally, one of those things that I'm working on. But at the same time, as I've sort of aged, my IDGAF factor has gone up quite a bit. So, you know, if, if a hunt doesn't come together, there's there's less ego that's bruised, you, you know, when something happens. The, the only one that still really hurts is, you know, when you when you've waited to draw an elk tag or a mule deer tag or antelope tag for a long time and then it doesn't come together like those ones those ones sting a bit you know and um but <clears throat> i have to figure out a better process for myself in order to facilitate you know being able to stay and and a lot of that for me is just finding connectivity so i can feel level set on making sure that things are okay in my absence. And, yeah. and that, and literally one of the things I'm working through because, uh, you know, last few years have just been, there's been so much anguish for me with, with regard to that. So, uh, you know, I'll get there eventually. It's just, a, it's a matter of everything else in my life. It's, it's, a I need to process, create a process for it. Yeah. Well, you, you bring up those, those, you know, when you pull a really, really good tag for something and that's a weird experience, you know, in the whitetail world, I'm sure the, probably the, the the easiest to understand is that Iowa tag, right? Anybody who's ever played the points game and given Iowa all your money for years and years and years and finally got that tag, there's a weird feeling with it. Like it's, it, it immediately, it, it has the, the immediate possibility of putting you right in a trophy hunter mindset where that's what matters the most. And it's not like, we, I, I really had this driven home to me last year when I drew my Iowa tag and I hunted down there on that public land because it was so fun. It wasn't, I mean, it was, it was, I had, I had the goal of killing a good one, but I just knew from scouting and stuff that I was going to see tons of deer and probably beyond lots of them. And it was just so fun. And it made me realize like, man, when you draw that Iowa tag or you draw that, you know, a good elk tag out West, it's so easy to just be like, I got to kill a 330 plus bull, or I got to kill 150 inch plus whitetail because I have this tag and I got X amount invested in it. And you're supposed to kill big animals when you get those tags. But really, sure. a lot of what that premium price is and that, that luck built into drawing it is tied to a quality experience. You know, like if you go on an elk hunt and you go to Colorado and you're on an over the counter unit and it's eight days of bumping into other hunters and you only hear one real bull bugle and you only see three cows. That's a tough deal. That's a low quality experience out there generally in a lot of ways. And then that other tag in the unit where they're only giving out X amount of tags and it's, you know, it takes you eight years to draw it. What, what you're getting there. Yeah. You have a better chance of killing one, but you have a way better chance of just having 
that immersive elk experience that everybody wants. And it's the same thing in the whitetail world. If you, if you go, if you get one of those tags, that Iowa tag, it's still not a guarantee you're going to, you know, like you're going to have a taxidermy bill at the end of it, but you have a hell of a lot better chance of going and seeing really cool buck activity and always feeling like you're in the game and, and just having a super fun hunt. That's what keeps you, I, I think for me, that's what keeps me motivated more through the end when you're continuing to have, you know, it's always easier when you're not struggling, right? You know, I mean, if, if you're going out and you're, and you're getting into a lot of deer every day and you're having sightings of good, good deer in an Iowa or an Illinois or even at home or whatever, it makes it so the process is that much easier. If you're just, if you feel like you're getting beat up every day and you're grinding and whatever else, it's hard to keep your head in the game. I mean, it's really, really difficult. And, uh, you know, I mean, last year I drew an Iowa tag too, and I got there just in time for the heat wave and, you know, to do, I think it was, I think I did eight or nine all day sits, you know, in 70 to 80 degree temperatures, just not conventional, conventional weather for that time of year, you know, for second week in November or whatever it was. Um, and you know, it is what it is, but you know, I ended up, I was fortunate. I ended up shooting a buck on like the last after last afternoon I had the next morning to hunt. And then I had to, I just had to get home cause, uh, I had stuff going on with my kids and I was out of time. Um, and it ultimately wasn't, wasn't the deer that I really went to Iowa for, you, you know what I mean? It was like, it was just like you said, you know, I, I went there to shoot 150 inch deer or, or greater. And this, this deer didn't measure up to that, you know? And, uh, and I didn't shoot it because it was the last minute. I just kind of had some ground shrinkage, but, um, you know, I still had a good experience. I still had, I still had fun. Cause like, like you said, I was just seeing tons of deer every day. I mean, there was not a single sit where I didn't get into the stand and wait, man, I, I mean, I bet you 30, 45 minutes. And then, you know, at that time of year, I mean, there were times where it was just, I mean, it was just a constant flow of deer, you, you know, that may not have been the bucks that I wanted to shoot or whatever, but at least keeps you entertained and engaged. I would have stayed longer because I mean, literally two days, no, right before I left the day that I actually shot that buck, we had a good weather shift, but I was out of time, but I was in, I was engaged and I was still excited and whatever else. And that's a very coveted tag. So you're spot on with that experience thing. And, and that's, what's, I think that's what's worthwhile for, for waiting for tags like that or go or, or paying the expense to go to, you know, an out of state place for whatever species it is, even turkeys, because you can, you can just have a better experience than potentially you, you can, you know, in other places. We have fantastic hunting where I am in New York. It's, it's very, very good, but I can unequivocally tell you it, pales in comparison to you know a few other places that i've hunted um you know and i have a blast here i mean just an absolute blast but you know and plus it's cool to just go and adventure i mean there's so much of this country to see and using the vehicle of hunting to do it i think is really it is really kind of a blessing and I'm, i'm i'm glad that i've been able to do that i mean you know through the things that i've done in my career i mean i've been all over the world because of this stuff and you know, 
if I were, I, I don't know, just doing whatever, I don't know that I would have been afforded those opportunities or been as enthusiastic about how they came together and whatever else. And I've also had to do some trips where I was like, oh gosh, got to do that again. You know, but it's, uh, I don't know. I think we've been on a few of those together. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it happens, but yeah. And it, it is, you know, they, again, this is kind of like, uh, just find your own way type of stuff, right? Like some people don't really like to travel to hunt. They want to stay and, and hunt their farm at home. I've got a buddy like that. Who's he, he'll hunt the same redneck blind over the same food plot every single year till he's dead and be super happy. And it's like, okay, that's, that, that's your thing. But when you, when you go out and do a little of this travel, like you don't have to go, you don't have to play the points game in Iowa, but if you love hunting, one of the coolest things you can do is just go hunt somewhere else, go have that new experience somewhere else. And sometimes it's not about that quality that, you know, the, the Iowa quality hunt. Sometimes it's just about different and different can be pretty fun. You know, like you kind of realize how you default to easy stuff. When you've got, especially if you've got like a private place set up, it's so easy to go sit the same stands you've you've always sat and kind of go sit. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's cool when you if you if you kind of slid into that routine to go somewhere where you don't have the option, then you realize, man, I got to start looking for sign. I got to go mobile, and I gotta I gotta be watching more. And it just changes it changes the hunt for you. And you know, some people don't like it, but a lot of people do that, and they go, oh, this is I needed this. This is really cool. Well, and you're figuring out something different, right? And that's that's what the the element uh, that of attraction is, right? It's just I don't know. I, I personally I like walking onto a new piece of ground and going, "Ooh, I've never seen." I don't have any experience with any place that I've ever sat here or ever any place that I've ever walked here. Like this is virgin, and it's the first time I'm ever garnering any experiences. I mean, you know, I remember it feels like all my memories that are like the strongest and the most positive are the first time that I hunted a species or the first time I hunted a species in a certain place or with a certain outfitter. I mean, I don't do a ton of outfitted hunts, but like all of those that are the most standout in my memory are, you know, again, those first, those first timers. I mean, you know, I, I used to hunt with this one, um, this one hog outfitter and, I remember my first experience there was like, whoa, you know what I mean? Just blew my mind. So, so awesome. And then I went back to second time. It was still really good. Every time I've been there, it was really good, but it was a, it was a different experience each time. And, um, you know, I kind of, I use that economics term, those degrees of satisfaction, my degrees of satisfaction just diminished a little bit and diminished a little bit. And I went from feeling like, wow, I got to try and figure out a way to do this every year to, wow, I'll come back to so-and-so's place whenever I get the chance. And, you know, and that I was talking to my dad actually about that one place the other day. And he's like, Hey, would you go back there? I'm like, yeah, you know, I'd like to try somewhere else. And that happens for most people. I mean, if you talk to most outfitters, their repeat customers, the vast majority of them are three times, they'll get them three times and then they're moving on to some, someone else. And that's just, I think that's just the, kind of the Ponce de Leon in us, right? The Explorer yep. is falling out and we want to, or coming out rather, like we want to go and check out new stuff and, 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 and look for something that gets us more fulfilled. Yeah. Well, I think, I think when you bring that, that topic up, you're, you're kind of touching on 
the, we love the novelty and the idea of some stuff, but we also love the process of hunting. And, it, you know, like hogs are a big one, right? I, you know, so many people want to go, I want to go on a hog hunt. I want to go shoot hogs. And you go do it and it's freaking fun. You know, like it's sit on that feeder and they start coming in and then you're like, oh, I kind of want to spot and stalk hogs. Like I know what it's like to shoot them when they're, you know, vacuuming up corn underneath a feeder. And then it just, it just kind of changes. You're like, okay, I know what this is. And it's still a blast. But if you go, if you go on a couple of those hunts that are outfitted, you're like, okay, I don't own, really own that process. I show up and, you know, and I think we, I think we're drawn to that part of it a lot more than we think sometimes. And that's why, that's why whitetail hunting I really think is so there's, there's just magnetism to it that we can't really explain very well, but it is, there is such a year round process to it. Even if you don't do anything for the next three weeks, you're thinking about it, or you might have e-scouted and not really paid attention. There's, there's something always to be done and something always to learn. And you can make it into, you, you can find something to do every week or every month that, that just kind of brings you a little bit closer to what you think is going to be success. But it's kind of like, I, I kind of look at it like training a bird dog, right? People will always say, well, I want that finished bird dog. I'm like, there's no such thing. <laughs> I, the, I, I've, I work with the best trainers in the world. There's no such thing as a finished bird dog. There's badass dogs that are really good. They're not a hundred percent compliant. You know, they're not, it's not like they, you know, anybody who tells you, you know, that my dog's never lost a bird or, you know, we, every, every duck we've ever shot that sailed off into the distance and hit the water has come back in my, my dog's mouth. That's bullshit. Like there's, there's not perfection out there, but you can keep working toward it. Just like in the whitetail world. Hey, if you find that, uh, per, that trainer that makes a hundred percent finished bird dogs, let me know. Uh, cause, uh, yeah, I have one that could use that, uh, <laughs> Well, let me tell you, if you find a trainer that tells you they can do that, then run away. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. Because they're not going to get you there. Tim, uh, so much fun as always, buddy. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your stories and your wisdom. Uh, you're, you're out there selling, you're selling some land. You're doing a little bit of writing. Where, where can people find you out there? Yeah, so um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. So I have, uh, you can find me on either one of those just on my kind of personal stuff, which is just Timothy G. Kent. There might be some underscores or dots in there, but I'm sure if you find me, just look for the funny guy who's with a kid or a wife. And that's me. Big smile. That's a, and then uh, my, I work for Whitetail Properties Real Estate. I'm a land specialist and uh, my, my, Whitetail Properties handle is just Tim Kent WP, and that's again on Instagram and and Facebook, and um, yeah, I, and then I, I I do some writing for Bowhunter Magazine and a few other places, so um, you know you can check out some stories there too. Awesome, thanks, buddy. Yeah, man, thanks. That's it for this week on Wired to Hunt. I have been your guest host Tony Peterson, and I cannot thank you enough for listening. Please check in every single week. We're going to have more good whitetail hunting information coming your way on this podcast, on my Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, at our Wired to Hunt website that is full of videos and articles on whitetail hunting. We've got a ton of new YouTube stuff coming out. If you if you look anywhere in the Wired to Hunt world, you're going to find some really good whitetail hunting content. So please check that out. As always, again, thank you so much for listening. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. 
they got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.